You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. (laughs) Now we're recording. Uh, yeah, so I'm Mike. I'm one of the people that David occasionally taps to uh, um, teach some of the classes. And uh, we're going to be doing the fourth beatitude tonight. And uh, we're going to start by reading the beatitudes um, as we do every week. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Uh, Let's open in prayer. Lord, these are your words. They're the most important words we're going to hear tonight. And so we just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would um, speak through your words tonight, that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say to us. In your name we pray. Amen. So when I was uh, reading up on this class, um, one of the books that I read uh, was by a Franciscan friar. And I didn't actually like the book so much, other than it had one really uh, compelling story. And uh, the, the way he wrote each of the Beatitudes is he would pick an adjective, and he would use that adjective to kind of uh, direct the, the flow that he, he wrote throughout that chapter. And so for the fourth Beatitude, the adjective he used was longing. And uh, so there's a story that I really like that that is really tied into this theme of of longing and of yearning that we're going to be touching on a lot tonight, called Driven by Desperation. I once met a man at a refugee camp in Mexico who was attempting to cross the southern border of the U.S. He was from one of the Central American countries, meaning that he had already traveled a few hundred miles to get where he was, and that he still had more than a thousand miles to go Uh, to get before he arrived at the American border. He was hoping to hitch a ride on the back of the train that ran through town, but he knew it was dangerous. Not only did the police monitor the railways, but also there were traffickers and gang members looking for people to extort. I couldn't help but look with dread at what he was likely going to face in the coming days and did my part to warn him of what's going, what could likely happen, but he knew it already. This was not his first harrowing trip up the Mexican coast to the American border. Twice he'd made it most of the way up the coast, encountering police and traffickers, bribing people just enough to stay alive, only to come up short. Now, having been caught and deported for the third time, he was beginning the journey again, fully aware of the dangers that awaited him. He wasn't sure if he would survive, but he was going anyway. Naively, I asked him why he kept trying. Given the danger, why continue to risk your life Um on such a treacherous journey. Matter-of-factly, he responded, how can I not? My whole life is up in America. As it turns out, he was successful once uh, in the past on his trip. 15 years ago on his own, he managed to get all the way from Central America to Texas and set up a home there. He found a job, he bought a house and married a woman, had a couple daughters with her and settled into a normal life. When he said that his whole life was in Texas, he wasn't kidding. What choice do I have, he said, even if it might kill me, I have to try. So one of the things that uh, we see when we look at this beatitude is the language that Jesus is using is is what we call uh, existential language. It's language that is tied into our very existence. So when he's saying hunger and thirst, it's this longing, it's this yearning for something that if you don't get it, you'll die from from the lack of. So if you don't get food, if you don't get water, you'll die. 
And what Jesus is saying is that he's taking this yearning that we have for the things that sustain our existence, and he's applying it uh, to heavenly goals. Before we uh, dig into it, I think it's important that we look um, much like we did for the first beatitude and compare uh, Luke's version uh, to Matthew's because they are different. In Luke uh, chapter six, uh, he said, blessed are you who hunger for you will be satisfied as opposed to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So there is a difference there. And much like uh, for the first beatitude, if you can remember back three weeks ago, um, we can look and see throughout the Old Testament that uh, we're reminded that hunger in and of itself is not idealized, but neither is being full. Neither having food nor being hungry necessarily brings us closer to God's kingdom. Rather, it's the attitude of our hearts. And when we read Proverbs 30 again, verse 8 and 9, Keep falsehood and lies away from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. So then looking at all this, why does Luke uh, extol the hungry? Well, once again, if we go back three weeks, we see that one of the reasons he might be doing this is that the hungry, like the poor, know that they cannot do it on their own and they need help. In the ancient Near East, if if you had a, a, a bad harvest and uh, you were on the edge of your like edge of starvation, there was not a lot you could do. You realized you had no one else to turn to and that, uh, yeah, you, you had nothing to bring to the table here. Another reason, and one a little bit more in tune with how Matthew puts it, is that um, those who were in Jesus's audience would have understood what it meant to be hungry. And they would have understood, as we said, the existential yearning, the desperate desire uh, for food. And so Jesus is using this uh, as an example uh, to show them the yearning they should be having for the things of God. So how does this uh, beatitude tie in with the previous ones? A little bit of a recap of the previous three weeks. Um, we start with the first beatitude and uh, blessed are uh, the poor in spirit. And uh, as David mentioned three weeks ago, um, this is uh, blessing us when we come to the realization that we bring nothing to the table, that uh, on our own, um, we cannot accomplish uh, anything that God desires. Without his grace and love, we're nothing. And so we start uh, this journey through the Beatitude, Beatitudes with uh, our hands open, um, only able to receive what God gives us. From our spiritual poverty, once we, once we start to receive from God, we start to become aware of our sin. We start to become aware of how far we are, have separated ourselves from our Heavenly Father. And we weep when we see that things are not right, not just in our own lives because of our sin. But we look at the world around us and we see the oppression and the injustice and just how things are broken in the world. And we weep and we pound the table. From our mourning and from our spiritual poverty, we start to get uh, a right view of ourselves, um, an appropriate smallness. We start to view ourselves in humility and, we and meekness. We realize who we are. And we realize who God is, and we realize that we are not God. And in meekness and in a poverty of spirit, we start to focus on the things of God and not on the vanities of the world. And so now we uh, reach the fourth beatitude. And in the uh, postures of, of poverty and, and in mourning and uh, understanding who we are in meekness, um, we begin to get an appetite for godly things. And we start to hunger and thirst for righteousness, for all that pleases God. And as we mature, it becomes like the yearning of a starving, starving and desperate person for food. We desire constantly uh, to be more like Jesus. We long more for, of him in our hearts 
and our lives and our daily practices. And when we compare what Christ offers to what the world offers, we say like Peter, uh, to whom else should we go, O Lord? You have the words of eternal life. And so as we've been saying uh, every week, um, the Beatitudes are not something that are, are naturally produced. They're not a natural phenomenon. And uh, on our own, we don't seek the things of God. It's through his grace and mercy that he even allows us to come to him um, in, the, in, the, uh, in spiritual poverty. There's another story that I like that uh, really exhibits this idea of, of hunger and thirst. And it's from a book called The Silver Chair. It's by C.S. Lewis. And uh, for those of you who've been to classes a long time, I pretty much bring up Lewis and every time I pre uh, every time I teach. So, um, yeah. And if you've never read uh, The Silver Chair, just a little bit of a background. The main character is a boy named Eustace and a girl named Jill. And Eustace, uh, if you ever watched or read Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the four kids, he's their cousin. And in the previous book, he was brought into Narnia and he became a follower of Aslan, who's the Jesus figure, um, much like uh, the four children from the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. And so in the sixth book here, The Silver Chair, he's at boarding school and his only friend is this girl named Jill and they're being bullied. And so they're running away from the bullies and they get to this door and the door's never been opened before. And so Eustace is like, Let's ask Aslan. Let's beseech Aslan for help. And lo and behold, the door is unlocked. And they go through it only to find out that the door didn't go into school. It went into this uh, wild land uh, surrounding of which there's this huge cliff. So Eustace and Jill uh, go to the edge of this cliff and they get into a little bit of an argument. And as a result of the argument, Eustace falls over. And so Jill is watching him plunge down the cliff to his um, inevitable doom, and a lion appears out of nowhere and basically magically uses his breath to pick Eustace up and blow him towards Narnia. Then the lion disappears. And so Jill is standing on the edge of this cliff, um, just completely um, befuddled of what happened, and she realizes she's thirsty, and she hears uh, what sounds like water behind her. So she turns around, there's this big forest, and she makes her way through the forest. She comes to a stream. This is where we'll pick up. But although the sight of the water made her feel 10 times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she'd been turned into stone with her mouth wide open. And she had a very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill. If I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off of it. How long this lasted, she couldn't be sure, but it seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad, she almost felt that she wouldn't mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty, you may drink. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. And then the voice said again, if you are thirsty, come and drink. And Jill realized that it was the lion speaking. Anyway, she'd seen its lips move this time, and the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. And it did not make her any less frightened than she'd been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May, may I, could I... Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might have as well have asked the entire mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to, to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? She asked. I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you'll die of thirst, said the lion. 
Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up, and it was the worst thing she had ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. And it was the coldest, most refreshing water she'd ever tasted. You didn't need to drink too much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. So at this point, we're going to take a little bit of a break because I've been talking for a while. And uh, we're going to do uh, a discussion question. So, um, you know, discuss around your tables and uh, online. You guys can uh, comment in the chat. Um, what's the longest you have gone without uh, food or water? And uh, what effect did that have on you? What, uh, any, anything anybody wants to share? Some of, some of the people online said, uh, it's a 30 hours, a 30 hour famine. Um, some, somebody made the point that, uh, hunger is much more tolerable than thirst. Thirst is, uh, is much worse than hunger. Anyone else? Any other comments? Hey, how valuable are you really? hungry or thirsty yeah in, in in canada how seldom we're actually hungry and thirsty in canada yes so for me it actually had to do with uh, the 30-hour famine so in grade 11 and grade 12 we did uh we did a 30-hour famine and uh in grade 11, so it started at Friday at noon, had a big lunch, and then it ended Saturday uh, with a big pizza party at 6 p.m. And I remember in grade 11 going through the whole thing, and by the time I hit about noon on Saturday, it was so hard to think of anything else but food. And uh, the last hour, when, when everybody knew that the pizza was coming and it was going to be there, it was just... It, it was the hardest thing I'd ever had to go through um, up until that point. I'd had a very easy life. Um, but it was, I remember it being so difficult uh, in grade 11. And I remember this because in grade 12, when we did the same 30 hour famine, uh, I had to work that evening. And I remember, so I'd been, I hadn't had anything to eat since lunch. And I remember it was about 10 o'clock when I got off my shift. I was like, well, I was supposed to go to the church for the, uh, the overnighter and we'd play a bunch of games. And I was like, yeah, forget this. And I went to Subway and uh, had a sandwich. I'm just like, I there, there's no point in me actually being hungry for the for an entire thirty hours. So yeah, I, I did it once, and then the second thirty hour famine. Yeah, it was maybe a ten hour famine. Yeah, it doesn't sound nearly as impressive. But yeah, I mean, it's it's what David said in the West. With our abundance of food, uh, we don't think of food in the same way that uh, that many people, um, not only um, in, in around the world, but especially in the ancient Near East, would have understood um, food security. And I mean, even some people in Canada, it's it's interesting um, when Trudeau in 2015 um, was uh, was campaigning. One of his big big campaign promises was uh, um, clean water in all the indigenous reservations uh, in Canada. And I was curious as to how well that had gone. And so I looked at a website and as of March 22nd, I believe, there's still 132 uh, long-term boil water advisories in, in indigenous reservations uh, around our country. And so even in Canada, there are people who understand um, that how closely they have to steward their water supply because they can't just go and turn on the tap and have the water come out and immediately drink it. And that's not to speak of, of people, uh, there's so many areas in Africa that have both uh, food security and water security issues. Um, there's some areas in Asia that have the same thing. And so we don't really understand what Jesus is saying here but the people that he was talking to definitely did. Because when you look at, at food and water 
and how that impacted um, the people um, in the ancient Near East. It was it was basically the most fundamental uh, of, of of things that they thought about. Maybe even more so than than their faith. It was where am I going to get my next meal and where am I going to get my next drink? The food. I mean, you look at uh, you look at Judea and Galilee, the two Roman provinces that uh, Jesus was primarily in and around, and they did have a decent amount of fertility there, especially along the Jordan. And if you were near the Sea of Galilee or the Jordan River, there was a decent chance that you would be able to uh, have a fairly regular water supply. But the instant you started to move away from that, um, food security and water security became a massive problem. When, uh, this would have been about uh, 13 years ago, I went to uh, Petra, Jordan. And uh, so it's a lot of the same type of area that, that Jesus would have been walking around. Um, and they took us to uh, this valley, and at the uh, bottom of the valley, there was a number of massive cisterns that had been basically dug into the stone and, by people from around the year 300 BC to around 100, 150 AD, so around Jesus' time. And they had dug all these uh, divots into the hills surrounding this valley, and the whole idea was they got about four four-ish days of torrential rain a year, and that was it. That was the, their water supply. And so they had ingeniously designed all these cisterns to funnel all the water that was coming down into these gigantic cisterns. And the idea was you only, in theory, needed three or four days of rain a year um, in order to uh, supply yourself for the rest of the year. There were, however, a few problems with this. First of all, years of drought were awful because if you didn't even get those three or four days, you were hooped. But not only that, the water that was in the cisterns wasn't particularly good. It could easily go bad. All you needed to do was have uh, one wild animal uh, fall into the cistern and die, and suddenly it was the, the dead body poisons all this water. And so even um, if you had some of these ingenious ideas, water security was not uh, was not a guarantee. And food security was just as bad because like for animals, if you killed an animal, the only way to preserve the meat was salt, and it was expensive. So generally, if you killed an animal, you'd try to eat it within two or three days before the meat went bad. So there was no way to really keep meat unless you happened to be rather wealthy and could, and could afford salt. But also with grain and, and, and vegetables, like it was pretty easy for varmints, uh, so rats and mice, and for insects to get in and like wipe out half your food supply. So most likely, the vast majority of people that are listening to Jesus uh, as he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, when he says hunger and thirst, they would have had an intimate connection to like, oh, yeah, I remember last year our our uh, crops didn't turn out particularly well. We were really, really hungry that year. We had to we went on like half rations for for most of the year. They would have understood it's like, yeah, we remember droughts. This would have been something they would have connected with them intimately. And so when Jesus takes this yearning and, and this desire for food and water and he connects it to righteousness, they would have been able to make that connection very, very quickly. Given how uh, difficult it was for people to, um, to get uh, food security and, and water security, it's no surprise then that food and water motifs uh, are used throughout the Old Testament. Um, and it's interesting that when you look at some of the food and water motifs, it's interesting how it starts from God providing it to food and water becoming part of the worship of, of the people of Israel. And so we'll spend a little bit of time looking at that. Um, we start in, uh, in the Garden of Eden, and, uh, and we see that uh, um, in Genesis 2, that... Uh, I've written down here. Yeah, in Genesis 2, that uh, God planted a number of trees uh, in the Garden of Eden that were both pleasing uh, to the eye and good for food. And uh, we go to chapter 3, and we see how quickly things turn south for humanity, um, because the tree of knowledge uh, of good and evil also has fruit that is uh, pleasing to the eye and good for food. And so it's interesting that when you read verse 6, 
And uh, the, the order it goes is when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and it's also good for wisdom. It's interesting that the, the, the primary desire of her and the man was like, it looks really good. That, that fruit looks really delicious. Let's eat it. And hey, we'll get wise. In the Exodus, uh, we see God providing both water and food for the Israelites uh, over and over. For water uh, in Exodus 15. So this is literally three days, not even an entire week, after God led the Israelites through the Red Sea. So this massive, uh, massive miracle. He parted the seas. He led them through. He drowned the Egyptians. Three days later, they arrive at this uh, oasis, and uh, the water is not fit to drink, and the people start to grumble. And uh, almost instantaneously, they forget the God who saved them from the Egyptians. They forget the God who sent the 10 plagues on, on the Egyptians, and they grumble. And yet God saves them, and he commands Moses to throw a log into the, into the um, uh, oasis, and it becomes sweet, and they're able to drink it. Two chapters later, there isn't even an oasis around, and they start to grumble again. And Moses strikes uh, strikes a rock with his staff, and water pours out. And we fast forward to Numbers 20, and it happens one more time, except that this time Moses is told, told to uh, command the rock to produce water, and instead he uh, hits it again with his staff, so he disobeys. And despite his disobedience, God uh, graciously gives them water. And so... Three, at least three separate times, the Israelites, um, when they're faced with, uh, with uh, um, thirst and, and uh, dying because they don't have water, um, God delivers them. And with food, it's interesting because when you read um, the provision of manna and quail, um, it says that this happened, like it doesn't talk about it a whole lot else in, in the uh, Exodus narrative, because it happened every day. Every single day, manna, so is this, this kind of seedy-like stuff that would lay on the ground when the dew uh, dried up, and they would make bread out of it. And then quail would come in the evening for meat for 40 years. For 40 years, six days out of the week, this would, uh, this would occur. And it's interesting because you got to think that after 40 years, the Israelites probably stopped thinking about this as miraculous, that it just becomes, well, this is what we do. This is how we get food. We, we uh, get up in the morning, we, we collect the manna, we make the bread, and we eat. And, and that's how life works. But every single day for 40 years, other than the Sabbath, God provided for them. And it only stopped when they were able to eat the produce of, uh, of Israel when they got there. And we start to see uh, God taking food and water motifs and, and working it into the worship um, and the identity of the people of Israel. And we see that with the dietary laws. God lists a whole bunch of animals that are unclean and you're not supposed to eat. But even the animals that are clean, there are very specific rules that you had to follow in how you uh, butchered the animal and how you prepared the animal. And because I like my steaks blue rare, I was curious, so I actually looked at that. And you can get kosher blue rare steak, but it has to be prepared properly because they need to make sure that all of the blood is out of it. So if you just go to the keg and eat uh, blue rare, it is not kosher, if anybody was actually curious about that. Or steak tartare. I like that as well. <laughs> paper hmm? Blue rare steak, paper yeah. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so God also works food and and water, well, not so much water, but food and drink into the sacrificial laws. And so we see in the book of Numbers that uh, again and again the people of Israel when they are called to sacrifice are basically giving up the things that will sustain their earthly life. They are giving up the animals that they that they raise. Uh, for food, they're giving up grain um, in terms of grain offerings. So things that they would normally eat, they are giving to God, and uh, part of, part of it usually gets burned, but most of it gets given to the Levites to eat. But the fact of the matter is that God is tying in this idea of hunger and thirst. So you're giving up stuff that you'd use to alleviate hunger and thirst uh, to sacrifice to Yahweh. 
and we see in the uh, in the communal festivals that uh, that God commands the Israelites have every year, especially in the Passover, that He ties uh, food <laughs> and drink together with uh, with remembering, remember uh, how God delivered you from slavery uh, from the Egyptians. And finally, we see that God does sometimes use uh, food and water, or lack thereof, as a punishment. And the book of Joel is is a big one of these, that uh, in the book of Joel, they're suffering from not only a drought, but also their food's all been eaten by locusts. And so they are now throwing themselves on God because they have nothing else. They have no water, they have no food. And God is saying, this is because you were trusting in things that were not me. You were trusting in the food you had. You were trusting in the water you had. You were trusting in your wealth, which basically was food and water. And God is saying, no, you need to trust in me. When we arrive in the New Testament, um, we see that a number of Jesus' miracles uh, revolved around the motif of of food uh, and drink as well. There's the wedding at Cana. Uh, there's the feeding of the 4,000, and the big one is the feeding of the 5,000. It's the only miracle other than the resurrection that makes all four Gospels. It's interesting. So, I mean, Jesus feeds 5,000 men and, and probably more women and children um, with five loaves and, and two fish. And what was the response of the crowd? They basically were like, we need to make this guy king. That uh, they realized that there were there was uh, prophecies from the Old Testament that pointed towards um, the provision of food, and so they assumed, and rightly so, that Jesus was the prophet that was uh, that was uh, prophesied. Prophet that was prophesied. Anyway, um, that Jesus was this man, and so they understood that. But then they ignored everything that he said, and just like let's make him king. This seems like a great idea. Not only will he kick the Romans out, but he'll also feed us. And Jesus, more so than even the kicking of the Romans out, um, when he talks to them later, he says, you know what? The only reason you're following me is because of the buffet. Like you you get a free buffet out of this. And and that's why you're following. You have no interest in the kingdom of heaven. You have no interest in who I am and what I'm saying and what I've come to do for you. All you want is your food. And finally, we see Jesus relating himself to food. And we see him, um, just one second here. Yeah, we see him relating himself to food. In John 4, he's meeting with uh, the woman at the well. And uh, so she's a Samaritan woman. And there's no way that he should uh, ever have uh, talked with her um, because he's not only a Jewish man, but he's a rabbi. And rabbis just didn't uh, deal with these people. And she comments on that. And uh, then Jesus asks her for a drink. And um, they have a little bit more of a discussion of that. And then uh, when she comments on, about, uh, about water, Jesus says, uh, everyone who drinks this water, so that of the, uh, of the well, uh, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So, of course, the woman is very interested in this, but even then she only sees it as a physical, uh, as physical water. She's like, if I never need to actually go and find some water, that's a great idea. I'm in. Give me this living water. In John 6, uh, so shortly after the feeding of the, the 5,000, um, Jesus is talking, uh, talking to some people and uh, the dis- discussion about, about Moses and manna comes up again. And so we read in uh, John 6, so they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the man in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And the uh, the culmination of Jesus relating himself to food, um, we see in, in communion. 
And we read in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 11, for I received from the Lord. So this is Paul relating um, what communion was or is. Um, for I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we see, even when Jesus comes, he he fulfills this whole idea of tying in the motifs of food and drink into our worship. And it culminates in the communion meal. So, talked a little bit about, about the motifs of food and drink. Um, why then use hunger and thirst uh, to describe the pursuit of righteousness? Effectively, what Jesus is saying is that righteousness is an existential need. If you remember the term existential, it has to do with our existence. In the same way that food and water sustain our lives, Righteousness sustains our lives. Those who seek and are satisfied by God's righteousness are the only ones who are truly alive. Those who ignore it, those who try to satisfy themselves with something else, um, are actually dying. They may not recognize the symptoms, but spiritually, they're dead. So now that we've looked at, uh, at hunger and thirst... And, and what yearning and longing for righteousness uh, should look like, I think it's important that we actually look at what righteousness is. So there's a number of uh, um, definition, pe people that defined uh, righteousness, and it's mostly in the end all very similar. But uh, the two theologians that I really liked were, uh, were John Stott and, uh, and Daryl Johnson. And John Stott says that righteousness has at least three uh, aspects. There's the legal, there's the moral, and there's the social. And Jesus isn't talking about the legal justification here, because that's our justification before God. Presumably, he's talking to people who are already his here. He's talking to his disciples. Rather, what he's talking about here is moral righteousness, which is, um, which is our actions, which is the inner righteousness of heart and mind and motive but it's not just us social righteousness is looking at ourselves and looking at the righteousness that we desire that we hunger and thirst for and that only comes through jesus and then desiring that for the entirety of the human community Gerhard von Rad had a very, he's a, another theologian, he had a slightly different uh, take on this, one that Daryl Johnson um, expands on. And he says that uh, there's no concept in the Old Testament with so central a significance for all the relationships of human life as that of righteousness. It is the standard not only for man's relationship to God, but also for his relationship uh, to, his, uh, to his fellows, reaching down to the most petty wranglings Indeed, it is even the standard for man's relationship to the animals and to his natural environment. And Daryl Johnson takes this and basically boils it down to four areas. Righteousness is uh, four areas of right relatedness. And uh, yeah, a little bit of this will be a recap of what, what David preached on on Sunday morning. But, but first of all, there's our relationship uh, with God, having a right relationship with God. And we look at uh, when Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment is. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that's pretty much fundamentally what there is in terms of right relatedness of God is loving God, understanding who we are and who he is, having a humble view of ourselves and appropriate smallness. There's a right relationship uh, with ourselves. And I think there's, there's an element here that involves um, us being very, very honest with ourselves. We need to take a look at our own hearts and we need to ask ourselves, 
what do we really yearn for? Like what burns in our heart? What, what things do we see uh, in and around the world that are not God or not of God um, that we yearn for? And we need to be very open and honest for the things in our life that uh, become idols. And these things may not necessarily be bad. We can make uh, relationships, we can make family members, we can make jobs, idols, and none of these are bad in and of themselves. But when any of them take the uh, uh, priority of place that is we need to reserve for God, that's when it becomes, that's when righteousness is broken. That's when we are no longer right related, not only with God, but with ourselves. So the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so we've looked at loving ourselves, and now we need to look at being uh, loving others, being in right relationship with others. And it boils down to uh, the importance of community, the importance of Christian community. It's interesting. Uh, I work in technology, and so I kind of keep my uh, a thumb on the pulse of, of what's going on. And I was reading an article about uh, AI and uh, the author of the article saying that this is one of the most massive technological yeah, technological shifts we've seen in the shortest amount of time. Um, we've had massive technological shifts. It, they've just usually taken number of years to actually uh, kick in. This one, when you look at the number of people that went onto AI back in September, it was around uh, a few thousand a day. Um, recently, like in March, it was up to about a billion uh, queries of AI uh, every day. And people are developing AIs now, AI companions. And so you don't even need to worry about uh you know, all the problems that come with having friends and having family, uh, with, with dealing with, with romantic relationships, you know, you can just have your AI companion. And what they'll do is they will learn about you and they will deter, they will be able to tell over time things that you like, things that you don't like. They'll be able to adjust um, their language to, to, to ways that really connect with you based on your reactions. Now, currently, this is all done via typing, but it's only going to be a matter of time before you just flick on your uh, um, camera on the screen, and the AI is going to be able to actually determine based on your facial expressions, and it's going to be able to even uh, better hone the, uh, the algorithm to seem like it's actually a companion for you. And just the problems of this, just the problems that we are making a technology that's going to discourage people from, from being in community. I mean, my job is through tech, is dealing with technology. Technology in and of itself is not necessarily bad, but we do have a tendency as a people to start worshiping the things that are supposed to serve us. And one of the ways that uh, I can see us worshiping technology is that we are allowing it to replace community. We are allowing it to break uh, our right relationship with each other. Could go on for, for a long time about that. In fact, we could probably do an entire class on that. This fall. This fall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And finally, um, right relationship with the world. Uh, there are a number of theologians, like I, I, I searched through uh, a number of theologians that talked about um, our dealing with the environment and being Christian. And the number of theologians that said some variant of the greatest environmentalists in the world should be Christians. That when we look at the world around us, and when we understand the creation mandate that God has given to us, when we understand the dominion of the world that he has given to us, but also that the world is not ours, that it is his, and we will be called to account for what we do with it, we, above everybody, should be uh, staunch environmentalists. We should be uh, concerned about, about how we deal with the environment, about the impact our actions have on the environment. And so there's an element of right relationship uh, with the world. So 
if that's what righteousness looks like, then what does unrighteousness look like? Unrighteousness would be anything that satisfies us, that is not from God, and breaks uh, one or more of the four relationships outlined above. And this is, once again, not an exhaustive list. Uh, practicing uh, hypocrisy or, or deceit that breaks relationships with others. Um, contributing to injustice or oppression also breaks relationship with others. Idolatry and pride breaks relationship with God. And then we go through each of the seven deadly sins, and we can see how in each case, each one of these could break any one or all of the relationships with God, ourselves, others, and the world. Okay, so I've been talking a lot. So we're going to do another uh, quick discussion. Um, so when we think about yearning and longing, this, this hunger and thirsting for righteousness. So where is an area um, you can use some of the uh, ones Daryl Johnson put up there as, as an example to kind of lead you in your thought? But uh, where's an area you yearn for something that is righteous? And if you're feeling bold and, and vulnerable, uh, where is an area where you yearn for something that is not of God? So we'll take a few minutes and we'll discuss it. We'll uh, yeah, chat with people online and we will pause the... Or should I? There we go. Wording in progress. Any uh, any thoughts you guys had? Any Anything anybody wants to share? No. They were definitely awkward questions. I. Uh, you have a question. Yes. Yeah, you can ask a question. <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, and I didn't actually talk. I, I, I thought about that and I realized I was starting to run out of time. So I didn't talk a lot about uh, satisfaction. But uh, I would say that um, from the number of commentators that, that I read about, uh, there are kind of there are two levels uh, of satisfaction. One is in the here and now, and we can receive the satisfaction of hungering and thirsting for the things of God uh, here and now. He gives us this satisfaction, but that our ultimate satisfaction, when all things will be made right, when when everything will be well, that uh, that that comes in, in our resurrection bodies, and so we can experience satisfaction, but it won't be ultimate satisfaction. You're welcome. Yeah, did anybody else have any other questions? I just talked a good chunk there without breaking for any questions. One more question. Sorry, can you repeat that? Talk about injustice, justice and injustice as a, a, a part of righteousness. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I would say that that would probably fall under um, right relationship with others, and uh, that that's where I mean, when you talk about things that that make us uh, weep and pound the table, I think that's an area that's a major area. The, just the injustice in the world, and uh, just just how much it uh, it breaks God's heart. And as we become um, more and more attuned and more and more uh, yearning for the things of God, the more it should break our hearts when we see injustice in the world. And when we see it, we can't just see it and walk away. There may come a time when we need to take action and just having the wisdom to know what that action is. Uh, one might better to also separate the justice and injustice uh, being connected to uh, people being in right or wrong relationship. Yeah. Or relationships. Yeah. So that desire, if you see a broken relationship, that desire to reconnect that relationship is, mm. is an act of justice and, a, and a, turning a blind eye to that broken relationship is an act of injustice. Yeah. Yeah, so David was saying that uh, justice is when we see a broken relationship, uh, striving to fix it. And if we turn a blind eye to that broken relationship, that's an uh, act of injustice. Yeah. Any any other questions? So John Stott says there's perhaps no greater secret of uh, progress in the Christian life than a healthy, hearty spiritual appetite 
If we are conscious of slow spiritual growth, the reason might be that we have a jaded appetite. It's not enough to mourn over past sin. We must also hunger for future righteousness. So it's not enough to just sit and, and learn things in our head. We actually need to put it into practice. We, we need to let it impact us and affect us and direct um, where we act. And as we look at some of the practices to hone our hunger and thirst for righteousness, uh, that would be the first one. So take action in areas that lead to right relatedness. And when I was uh, mulling over uh, this first question, um, the first thing that came to me is like, well, areas that I can, uh, areas that I can serve. My wife and I, we used to serve on the downtown east side for a good long time, and that was an area with a lot of brokenness. And so that was an area where we could serve and and work towards uh, relational righteousness, work towards uh, fixing broken relationships. But the more I thought about that, and then I went to the men's retreat. Um, and one of the things that Rick Watts uh, kept on saying, one of the main themes was that uh, um, was of reconciliation, uh, peace and unity. And I realized that uh, taking action in areas that lead to right relatedness is not necessarily just going out and serving. It's also looking for areas in our own lives where there is brokenness. Uh, looking for uh, relationship, relationships in our own lives where we need reconciliation, where we need to work towards reconciliation. And we need to understand that as we work towards reconciliation and, and hopefully from that reconciliation, we see uh, peace and unity come out of it. But we need to understand that there are times where we can do all that we can, but if the person doesn't respond to it, that... Uh, Reconciliation may never come, but as much as it is up to us, we need to, as people of God, work towards reconciliation, peace, and unity with, with everybody, with, with our friends, with our family, with our coworkers, people around us, our neighbors. We need to be uh, reconciled when there is a break in relationship there. The second thing we need to do to uh, hone our hunger and thirst for righteousness, um, I mentioned this before, is to analyze our desires, to ask ourselves what burns in our heart. Uh, what desires do we have that uh, lead to right relationships? And what desires do we have that lead to idolatry, that lead to unrighteousness, that lead to us putting other things in God's place in our lives? The third thing is we need to be accountable to people. Because I got to say, I'm pretty blind when it comes to self-analysis. I am not particularly good at looking at myself and saying that, okay, so this part, that's a problem in my life. Uh, fortunately, I, I have a wife and I have a life group that uh, that know me really, really well. And, uh, and they love me and they are not impressed with me. That is so important. You need somebody who loves you, but who is not impressed with you to speak truth into your lives. And finally, we need to uh, practice spiritual disciplines. And uh, I put fasting there because it fit with the uh, uh, um, food and water motif. But, but quite frankly, we need to practice um, all of the spiritual disciplines. And there's a number of good books about spiritual disciplines um, that uh, if you're curious about, well, I'm sure David knows a number of I know Celebration of Discipline by uh, Richard Foster, which is why I took the quote from that. But uh, there's a number of other books out there about spiritual disciplines if if you find uh, Foster's doesn't quite resonate with you. But uh, as, as at least as it turns, uh, as we look at fasting, uh, I like Foster's quote about this because he says, more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. That uh, when we're stripped of uh, the security of food and, and water, we start to, um, it's, it's easier for the Holy Spirit to speak to us. It's easier for us to be aware of the areas uh, in our life that are broken and we need to allow God to come in and fix. So as I wrap up, um, the past three weeks, uh, each week we've looked at the biography of of a different person. And uh, the first week it was John Newton. And the third week is it was William Wilberforce. 
And uh, both these men are significant because they made such an impact uh, in the world and in terms of the slavery that was that was uh, abolished in the British Empire. But one of the people that impacted uh, William Wilberforce uh, was a man named Olada Equiano. And so we're just going to take a few minutes as we wrap up uh, to look at his life. So he was born in, uh, uh, in Africa, likely in what is now Nigeria. And uh, around age 11, he and his sister were kidnapped and enslaved. And he talks about um, his memories uh, as a child. And uh, he talks about how he was aware of the spiritual the spiritual nature of the world. Now, the, um, the group he was in, the clan he was with, they had their own spiritual um, um, uh, ways of doing things that, uh, that were absolutely not Christian. But he was aware that there was a spiritual element to the world. And so when he was kidnapped... Um, there was this there was this gnawing hunger that that he felt uh, in his life, and uh, he went through some horrible experiences. Um, got sold from master to master, and eventually he got sold uh, to a British naval officer who allowed him to learn how to read and write, and actually introduced him to Christianity. And so, at age twelve, Equiano became a Christian. Um, but he says, like, his his faith was very immature. He didn't really understand anything about his faith. It was only when he was sold to his last master, who was a Quaker, uh, Quaker merchant, um, who taught him much more about what it was to be Christian, who was really a mentor to him, and who allowed him to purchase his freedom. And so Equiano um, goes from being kidnapped at age 11 to, to finally purchasing his freedom. And what is the first thing that he does? Well, he looks for a job and he's approached by, by somebody who he had uh, worked with before. And, and the person says, you know, we have this great idea. We're going to set up a plantation on the Mosquito Coast. And uh, the Mosquito Coast is um, uh, the north coast of Central America. We're going to set up this plantation. You know, we need somebody to manage the slaves. So uh, do you want to do that, Ecuador? And Ecuador was like, yeah, seems reasonable. So he goes from being enslaved and just all the awful experiences to basically helping to continue the enslavement of, of people that he might have even been related to. Fortunately, um, and in some ways, it looks like Aquiano would, uh, would say that this is God's providence. Um, the whole venture fails, and Aquiano ends up in London. And uh, when he is in London, he ends up uh, connecting with the abolitionist movement, and it stirs something in his heart. And he realizes that uh, to go back to uh, hunger and thirsting for righteousness, that this is his way to to work towards right relatedness with others, to fix this massive problem of slavery. And so he starts to work towards that with the abolitionists. And uh, he, has, he told his story to William Wilberforce, and it was a massive influence on William Wilberforce and his work towards uh, banning slavery in the British Empire. But he also worked to support um, the impoverished. There was a large population of impoverished uh, Black people in London. An interesting facet of English law was that you could have slavery just not in the UK, that the instant somebody landed in the UK, they were free, but they could be enslaved anywhere else in the British Empire. And so there was a large population of both freed um, and people who had escaped slavery um, in London, but they were impoverished, they were poor, there was not a lot of opportunity for them. And so Equiano spent most of his life helping them, working with them, and trying to make sure that, uh, that they were taken care of. He wrote his uh, autobiography, and it's called The Interesting Narrative of the Life of Olada Equiano, or Gustavus Vasa. So that was his slave name that he uh, used for most of his life, uh, the African. And it's one of the earliest narratives of the life of a black slave and was heavily influential um, in ending the British slave trade first and eventually uh, slavery entirely. And throughout his autobiography, he talks about God's providence and how he felt that God had brought him through all of these terrible things uh, to make him into a man that, that God could use. 
And uh, he says, I considered that the trials and disappointments are sometimes for our good. And I thought God might perhaps have permitted this in order to teach me wisdom and resignation. For he had hitherto shadowed me with the wings of his mercy and by his, his invisible but powerful hand brought me the way I knew not. So we will, uh, we will end there. If there's uh, any questions that you guys have, anything that uh, kind of uh, piqued your curiosity, um, we can chat about that for a little while. You're going to stop the recording? Sure. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.